Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of life, the show of Portland, the show of PDT, being an author, being a father, appreciating watches, smashing pumpkins, and so much more. It has been a long time in the running, but finally, I am so proud to share this great chat with Jim Meehan. He was recently in town partnering with Diageo, talking about the best practices you can share, whether you're a manager, whether you're behind the bar, whether you're a learner or a mentor, all of this in the Jim Meehan's bartender manual. He was just sharing his experiences. You know, how often do you get to speak with a legend? How often do you get to sit in a room with leather clad chairs and learn about the life of a hospitality legend? You know, this conversation could have went in many different directions. It could have went super hardcore hospitality. What are the tenets of hospitality for you, Jim? Or we can talk about movies. We can talk about his academic career and the things that he loves. Because smashing pumpkins is a deep passion for Jimmy Han or being a fan of Jimmy Chamberlain. These things drive the outcome. These things drive those cocktails and they drive the approach in life. So... Without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to share this chat with Mr. Jim Meehan. Yeah, I feel like the perfection and... I think it's important to be approachable. I guess that's the best way to describe it is I think yeah. that I've realized that while leadership can be lonely by virtue of the, the decisions that sometimes you need to make as a leader, which aren't always po- popular, um, it's certainly, as a young bartender and as a young leader, I was totally obsessed with people respecting me, and I really honestly could have cared less whether they liked me. Really? And as I've gotten older, I've realized that the terms and the ideas and the sentiments are not mutually exclusive and that people could respect me and like me yeah. and that I would actually be a more effective leader if they also liked me on top of respecting me. Given those things, when you couple them together, your experience and obviously your ability to really charm a room, you did a wonderful job. Some people, they don't, they're not a, they don't come as across as articulate as you. You know, you, this, you're two books in and you really can get a crowd clamoring for you. Do you like that part of it? You know, being kind of on center stage and having people hinging on your every word. Um, I think that after watching and being mentored and educated by people like Steve Olson, yeah. um, you know, watching Steve Olson speak, I I sort of jokingly refer to him as like the Martin Luther King of the bar industry. Right. Um, you know, it's not only have I learned a lot from Steve uh, as far as the content, but I've learned a lot about how to speak and how to engage audiences and yeah. people in particular. So uh, obviously public speaking is terrifying. <laughs> and, and going back to one of the topics I talked about earlier today, so much I feel like of being successful in this business has to do with making yourself vulnerable. And, and so 
I feel like public, great public speaking requires uh, self-awareness and it, it also requires you to put yourself out there in such a way where you can put your foot in your mouth. And, <laughs> and over the course of this tour uh, at various stops, you know, at some point or other, you know, maybe I've been a little undisciplined and have, but I find that even when you maybe say something you wish you could take back or when you do something or you, when, that you maybe weren't as articulate or as on, on uh, message as you should have been, yeah. that act of kind of putting yourself out there, even if ideally up to the point where you offend people, which thankfully I haven't and usually don't, uh, it's important. You know, it's like you got to, speaking of the political terminology that it gets thrown around a, a lot about uh, a party that I don't represent. You got you got to throw some red meat out there, sure. and I feel like the uh, you got to sh- so much of speaking is giving a sense of people who you are and, and what you're all about. You're absolutely so. This is that's the thing that when you I didn't seek out to be pressed. And I'm, these are air quotes, right? But capturing people's lives, I feel like the only way this conversation could work is if I'm just as vulnerable as you. Yeah. Right. And I know that the rote memorization and these kinds of things that the ger- journalists do, that makes for content. Yeah. It certainly doesn't make for reciprocal, like reciprocal content. Right. Yes. So vulnerability is a massive piece of any any show. It should be, and that's why the good interviewers. Not suggesting I'm a good interview, but yeah. that's what makes them good. And also, it's bound to have made your marriage better being vulnerable. It, I mean, it's a huge part of it. And yeah. I think that's the, you know, speaking of marriage, I mean, you know, my wife and I have been together for 12 years, married for over 10 of it. And I think that one of the things I talked about today was change and how the sort of pendulum of cocktail fashion, you know, mostly with respect to drinks, but even with respect to design and, and service and other elements um, people change, you know, yeah. and, and for instance, my wife and I have both changed over the course of the decade we've been together. And I think it's important to, uh, you know, if you keep your values uh, centered and you, you know, remain uh, ethical and purposeful and surround yourself with good uh, people who will be critical of you when they sure. need to be, uh, you can kind of stay on target. And I feel like that started you know, that starts for me right with my marriage and kind of radiates out from there. Is it a centering place for you? It is. Kids it, it is. It is. I find that the, you know, at first, speaking of vulnerability, I mean, when we had Olivia, you know, nearly six years ago, I've never felt more vulnerable in my life, especially vis-a-vis my employers yeah. when I had my first kid. And I, like my wife, um, hit the glass ceiling in America where the American workplace acts like women don't have children all the time. And, and my wife ended up leaving not really being forced out of her management position in a restaurant, and she's since been home. But, I mean, the, the process of sort of becoming the sole provider and the process of having a kid and the process of all my jobs going from something I do for myself and for money to something I do to support to other people was a big changing point in my life. But since I've kind of gotten through that and the newness of that at all, um, there's a huge point of strength you know having two kids and a wife and as i joked a f- ailing french bulldog at home snores a lot yeah he snores <laughs> a lot and needs to go to the vet once a month uh like an english sports car um <laughs> having those things gives me a sense of purpose yeah. gives, gives my work uh, m- meaning on multiple different levels and motivates me to remain hungry and want to do more and i think that's great i think it is great I, you know in, in self-admittedly too I don't have kids. You know, I've been married a few times. And sometimes I 
I've got purpose. We all have purpose, but yeah. I feel like kids kind of anchor that purpose, man. You, Ideally, yeah. You can't give up. Yeah. You must go on. Yeah. And it that's bound to be a nice motivating force. Well, I also think you do. that for me, like I see the world through my kids' eyes now. You know, like the world in oh. which I, I, I see is through you know it, through the their eyes, through the future that they're through their lived experience or through what I imagine they're experiencing, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the sense of uh, mortality and the sense of, you know, like things like the environment or things like, uh, like I had an Uber driver today who said he's been a, he's in his, he's nearly 50, but he's taking the year off to save money. He's been a teacher his whole career. And yeah. it's like, I just put my kids in my, I put Olivia into kindergarten this year. And so, I mean, Things like education and the role of certain people in your life, like teachers I mean, or, or even doctors having just had another baby. Yeah. Uh, it, it all takes on a different meaning when you have kids. What about technology when it comes to your kids? You seem seem to be well entrenched in some yeah, I'm, things. I'm, um, I'm pro-technology, and I think that, like for instance, screen time is uh, obviously a, a real thing right now. But yeah. for instance, like we just got... My wife's been, it's a long story, but we bought a craftsman house mm -hmm. and I refused to uh, put a TV upstairs because there's the rooms upstairs are not designed for a TV. Right. So the TV's in my basement. My wife doesn't like watching TV down there, so she watches TV on an iPad. So I just got them the new iPad Pro that comes with the pencil yeah, yeah. and immediately wanted my daughter to start drawing in Adobe. And I think that it's um, obviously managing screen time is important, but trying to get, uh, you know, to get my kids exposed to technology in a right. positive way is something Which, I think is important. We grew up in the 90s. Yeah. You know, we didn't have that same, we kind of were analog in that digital realm. Right. Writing exactly. letters right as we were writing emails. Exactly. You know? And it's a cool place for us because we can kind of relate. But of course, kids, they consume this stuff and they outgrow our tech acumen very well, quickly. a lot of the reason why I moved to Portland, we just had to do with sort of managing the amount of data that, that, you know, she would be able to take in. I feel mm. like in, in big cities like New York, there's so much happening on so many levels at all times. And Portland's a lot more kind of sleepy and quiet and neighborhoody. Yeah. And I feel like part of my goal in raising my family in Oregon versus raising them in New York City is um, and sort of giving them a little time to be a kid. Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely contrasting. And, you know, I mentioned this when you were kind of wrapping up the book signing in the other room here. That I really... You've done so much stuff, and you've remained humble in every interview that I've read, every interview that I've seen. And so, I, you know, people know about, I think, your culinary slash mixology kinds of accomplishments. But there was something I read, and I, I'm a massive film fan, and I love Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. And there was an interview you did for Esquire in 2015 with Steven Soderbergh, which, mind you, I was just envious the whole time to think about this. But people know the story. You know, you went to school. You studied to be a doctor. Math and chemistry became kind of difficult as it did for me as well. You yeah. Then focus on French and African American studies. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. And so that's we'll talk about that in terms of aesthetic. But you mentioned Michael Crichton. Yeah. You know, wanting to be a prolific writer, yet a almost like a lab-based or doctor, ultimately, right? Yeah. I he mean, was an MD right? who wrote best-selling sort of adventure novels like yeah. Jurassic Park and and West produced, World, right? well, wrote and produced yeah. ER. Yeah. It's, you're two books in. Not that there's any official curriculum that you can take as someone in mixology or in the hospitality industry, but it's maybe fair to say that for this industry, you might be 
the Michael uh, Crichton of this I, industry. I don't know. I feel like the the only element that I could attribute to Michael Crichton, or the only conscious uh, sort of way in which I may have positioned myself that way, is I feel like Michael Crichton was a bit of a Renaissance man, and mm. I think that one of the things that's kept this industry very interesting to me uh, is I really don't think I've never I've never really become a specialist in any specific part of this industry, but I've dabbled in things. You know, I worked on one of the early iPad apps and Speakeasy Cocktails, and mm-hmm. I have another app with Martin Dudroff, the PDT Cocktail app, and I've done everything from the roll-up to the bar cart to the trailer to the leather-bound edition of my book and the apron with Morin Giles and worked on banks and work on brand building and yeah. I have a spice line and two books. And, you know, I've, I've basically, I'm, I'm working on tools right now and a soda, uh, a bottling uh, of a soda that I've been working on for a couple of years. So, I mean, in, in uh, products and in, in, in all sorts of other sort of field, whether they be media or, or, or not, I feel like it's, Going back to that African American studies major, yeah. uh, growing up in the '90s, you know, we saw this rap music turn into hip hop culture, mm-hmm. and I watched the innovators, you know, in Sean Combs and Jay Z and Russell Simmons and and certainly Ice Cube and others uh, go from being rappers to being either media moguls right. or movie stars or or I mean, look at look. Look at what Kanye is doing right now, mm. you know, regardless of his politics, his his, his clothing, his shoes. Uh, look at what Jay-Z is doing and Beyonce. I feel like it's uh, these people are much more than just rappers right. or singers. And so they're entrepreneurs. And so I've looked, uh, I've used inspiration that I learned about when I was studying African-American culture and, and, uh, and sort of built that into sort of like those are their role models for me in the drink space sure. in the bar industry. Did you, you know, it was a very visceral time for cinema too because I, I think about Spike Lee in like 94, 93, yep. right? Do the Right yeah, Thing, one, the of thing. The, one of the greatest movies. Yeah. Did you by chance get to see Black, Black Klansman? I have yet to see it yet. I think it's an important... It, Saw Black Panther, which was definitely a, you know, a historic movie for African-American studies. Did it not feel like, like a movie from the 90s? To, know, me, it to, to me, it totally did, just harkening back to that kind of vibe, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was... I feel like some of those Marvel movies, especially Black Panther, you know, just you forget. I haven't seen Crazy Rich Asians, but I, but I think good. that the uh, as a white man, I am high, and especially as a white man who was an African-American studies major <laughs> and who's the father of a daughter, um, you we as white men need to understand that this world sort of was all has all been the bo- the board has been unfairly tilted yeah. to favor us in nearly every way and i think that just little things like representation which like i didn't watch black panther and feel alienated i just enjoyed the movie yeah. whereas the way in which it made a lot of black people feel is a completely different thing and it's just like imagine going through your whole life and you know having nothing but white role models kind of right you know, in whether it be our forefathers or, 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 you know, in musicians like Elvis Presley, who is regardless of how talented he was, really was was singing and performing something that was appropriated uh, from black people. Absolutely. So I feel like in some ways, uh, it's important for us all to be aware of that. I think so too. Do you? 
What is something that makes you aware as a white man? We're, we're both, right? And I, mm, I, I honestly think that it has to, for me, I have do my best to surround myself with, with um, critical people and yeah. people like very sort of, I, I think it, I talked a little bit about hiring today and I think that some people hire people in their own likeness. Mm. So they hire, you know, like in the bar industry, you'll go to some bars and it seems like everyone has tattoos and everyone looks like they could be in a sort of like, you know, a band or everyone looks like <laughs> you know, they all sort of like look the same. And right. I think some, a lot of people's hiring practices are tribal. And I find that um, I conscientiously surround myself with as diverse a group of people, um, culturally, racially, uh, by age, by gender, mm -hmm. by pre sexual preference. I, I like to surround myself with people who are different than me when, when I can, who also challenge my ideas. I, I don't surround myself with a bunch of people who think I'm great. Most of my friends make fun of me mercilessly at all times, <laughs> are not impressed with me, and know how uh, you know venal a person I am, and yeah. are willing to hold it against me at all times. So I think that you know, including my family and wife. So I feel like it's um, I'm only you're only as good as the people you know you surround yourself with. I think you're right, yeah. and you can't don't ever be the smartest one in the room. No, and right? if you are you know practice active listening as best you can i think the smartest people in our world know not what they know but they know what they don't know and they're aware that they can learn from everyone if there was another area of focus and you had not gotten into the hospitality industry and knowing that the doctor thing perhaps wouldn't work out yeah do you see yourself being a writer for film do you see yourself being in the arts industry? it's funny my brother peter is an is a gifted writer like right. a, a a truly excellent writer and he's my irish twin and we've spent most of our lives at each other's necks so i say that without any uh paternal or, or brotherly affection for the guy <laughs> he really is just a great writer and so i feel like it's almost when you're fortunate enough to, it, like it's hard to it's almost like when you play like in playing basketball yeah. i i play with a few not many, but a few truly great basketball players. And it almost makes you want to quit after yeah, you right. play alongside them. Because it's just, they're so much better than you. And it comes to them seemingly so much easier than it does for you. And I won't say that my brother, I'm sure, hasn't gone through his trials and tribulations. But he's a fantastic writer. And, and my best days, I'll never write like him. So I feel like writing is something I do. It's almost like a chore that I work on because articulating my ideas is yeah. very important to me. But I don't think I would ever push towards writing any, in any other field or discipline because I'm not really very good at it. Um, the, the one thing I found over the last few years that had I been exposed to it or had it been a thing or if I was 25 right now, I love watches and I've always really? loved watches. Yeah, and I've, you know, in, it sounds stupid, but I, and I did mention it today, but I feel like, Bartending is a craft, and what we basically do is we do a lot of marketing and sales. And I think that for me, um, I was too kind of cool for school and in a liberal arts college like Madison to ever take a business class. God, God, that would have helped me now. <laughs> um, but having never taken a business class before, um, I wish I would have. Uh, but I also in. 
I'm, I've become through no business class, uh, but through thankfully just by bartending and by being around smart people and great salespeople, um, I'm interested in sales and marketing, and I and I definitely gravitate towards those positions on the brand side. And just I remember I've, I was looking through baby pictures I just got, and I had the early swatches, and I had the early oh, digital man. watches, and yeah. I've always been a watch guy. And in the I remember taking a job in 2003 working at this bar called Pache that was right across the street from like Citibank and a lot of the other like Wall Street places. And that was the first time I was ever exposed to like fancy Swiss watches. Yeah. And I've been kind of a sucker for them ever since. And I feel like if I could do something else or if I could start over, I might try to figure out my way how to angle myself into watch. the watch I mean, business. That's kind of, I think the drinks have an aesthetic, right? Yeah. There's certainly execution and stuff and understanding. No, it but bars and drinks and tools and right. decor and music, it's, I love watches. Like I feel like but, watches are such a, you know, men don't usually wear a lot of jewelry, and but watches are one of the things that you're allowed to wear as a man. And I feel like it's uh, certainly now there's a big sort of thing for watches. But I'm really interested in watches, watchmaking. What kind of watch are you wearing? It's funny. I have three real watches, yeah. but I'm wearing currently wearing the Apple Watch, oh, yeah. and it's. Um, it's interesting. The one of the watches, Mark, I believe his name is Mark Newsom, is one of the designers of the Apple Watch. Obviously, mm-hmm. with Johnny Eves, who's the famous designer at Apple, and he designed a brand called IkePod, which is actually being reintroduced right now. I don't think it's being re- reintroduced in a, a sort of automatic or wind up. I think it might be coming in quartz. But I remember when IkePods first came out, I thought they were beautiful watches, and I think it's interesting that. The designer of that watch I loved 10 or 15 years ago was the person behind the Apple Watch. And the reason why I got it actually is because as I spend entirely too much time now sitting down and answering emails and on planes, uh, I love the, uh, I have the, not the latest, but the newer model that is sort of, uh, that doesn't need to be, uh, that has Bluetooth. So I can listen to my AirPods and work out without any wires and I like the sort of way in which it keeps track of how much you're moving sure. because I find that I've, unfortunately, now that I'm not a full-time bartender, lead a relatively sedentary existence. And this thing hard. keeps me honest. It's a, I mean, it's a great point. You know, because I was going to ask you, I was thinking about French New Wave cinema. I was thinking about, obviously, Spike Lee and stuff. And I was thinking, what, what kind of aesthetic influence do, what kind of aesthetic influences do you have? But then watches are, this is the thing. You can never create a new aesthetic. No. In my opinion, it's always no. a cultural artifact. Great. And it is it's all about zeitgeist. Yes. I feel like if you understand, I think that the, the creative people of our time are the ones, they're basically data collectors, and they're aware of what's going on in pop culture and sort of in the sort of like cultural ether, and they're dot connectors, yeah. and they're able to like anticipate based on their understanding of culture's history and art's history and music's history and... Uh, liquid history of what might be next based on that that kind of historical con- continuum. Right. So I think that watches are a fascinating sort of uh, element to look at in that space. Aesthetically, I mean, I look a lot right now. I, it's funny, I'm, I have a, a T-shirt from one of the local bars in Austin, um, the Nickel Bar? Nickel City. Nickel, yeah, Nickel yeah. City. And it's interesting, we, we got 
we picked up t-shirts in Nashville. Uh, I just went to Portland, Maine and picked up t-shirts at uh, Tandem Coffee. And I feel like we are right now in a design, a graphic design sort of like boom renaissance yes, where beer labels and books and records and uh, t-shirts and just graphic arts right now couldn't be any stronger. And yeah. the interesting thing is as print media is dying out, graphic art just seems to be getting better and better and better. Which is crazy because yeah. you, you need screen printing for that, you would right? Think, you so. would think that the death of print media would also signal the death of graphic art, but it's thriving. Yeah. And so the question you ask maybe as a sort of anthropologist or historian or, you know, just as a creative is why why is this the case? And I think those are the sort of uh, those are the sort of things that keep me interested and involved and keep my mind going, you know, through some of the sort of like boring minutia right. of the actual day in day out work. How do you feel about the resurgence of vinyl and that being the leading category? In terms I think of it's fantastic. Now? I mean, I for one, when I started bartending. There was no Spotify or Pandora, and you, you couldn't pay someone to program your music. You either played the radio or you had a jukebox. And so being a bartender in the 90s involved having some degree of, usually a huge degree of musical literacy. Yeah, and so that's great. I also find that like Spotify jerry picks songs from different artists, whereas like the greatest part about vinyl is it brings back the album. And I think artists used to not just create pop hits or remixes they used to have albums and the songs and the continuum of the songs used to have usually a deeper meaning right. or a, a story to tell and i think vinyl especially bars and restaurants playing vinyl allows you to hear more of that story has there been a record late and i love music and film this is why i go in this direction because you got two books we can read about cocktails you have been on again on the record talking about the, the beauty and your, your nuance as a manager and all that but What's a record lately that, as a record, has been deeply in impactful for you? It's interesting. I just went to, um, I, mean, I would say, the, I've, I'm always buying uh, different records. You and Morgan, who brought me on this tour, yeah. is into all this like dark metal. And I just bought <laughs> this compilation of like stoner rock uh, last night, late at night, before I went to bed. But I would say the one band that really has gotten me and has gotten me for a long time is Radiohead. Oh, yeah. And one of the things I've said about my career as a creative, as an entrepreneur, is I, you know, as much as I love bands like the like Aerosmith or the Black Crows, uh, that sort of sound the same album after album. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of Black Keys albums sound the same album to album. Right. Um, and, and I think that. For me, I love the way, you know, early Radiohead going back to Creep um, oh. versus modern Radiohead and even Tom York's independent uh, oh, yeah. albums Great. are, you know, completely different. Uh, and I think that it's amazing how artists like Radiohead or artists like the Beatles or artists like even like U2, mm. uh, especially older U2, not more poppy modern, rich U2. Um, but how they've how they've evolved their sound and evolved as musicians, and I feel like for me, I mean, you could say that in hip hop with Kanye, sure. whether you like his politics or not, I don't. But I feel like that's I'm looking to evolve 
as a creative. Yeah. And I love the way these artists, specifically Radiohead for me, have uh, evolved. Almost redefining themselves. Every, Every record, record, record to record. I mean, who made... You can talk about the beat of Sgt. Peppers and stuff, which, which is great after yeah. the White Album. But who made a steeper change after OK Computer to Kid A? I mean, yeah, is I mean, it, and, that ever, and ever to me, that, like, that's, I mean, it has, but I feel like it's Bowie. You know, well, Bowie is another yeah. example of someone who just, you know, Earthling versus like his earlier stuff yeah. versus, I mean, the coolest part about his last album is it, they, were, they were talking about, you know, the guy releases an album as he dies. Uh, and and they were, people were talking about when it was released that a lot of the cadences to his songs were influenced by Kendrick Lamar, oh, you know. Man. And I feel yeah. like, you know, taking it back to African American studies and culture, I just feel like for someone of Bowie's tenure and age to be influenced by Kendrick Lamar in his final record, I just think that is how I want to go out. Yeah. I want to go out under like being that aware and that nimble in the zeitgeist i think that you know i never know where these conversations are going to go and that's the greatest thing about it just this journey serpentine at times you know but in a way this whole conversation about the ever evolving change the new chapters the different genres you've traversed so many different things and i don't think it's a stretch to say it is very very metaphoric and reminiscent of Radiohead in that sense the question is then you know where does this all end up for you well I think that the answer is you know Tom York for instance is a fantastic solo artist yeah. but he sounds better with Johnny Greenwood sure. and the rest of the guys you know I was a I'm a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan oh, yeah. and it's funny like for me Jimmy Chamberlain the drummer is the is the most important. I mean, Billy Corgan, the Smashing Pumpkins aren't, right. they could not be the Smashing Pumpkins without, 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 without yeah. Billy Corgan, but Jimmy Chamberlain to me is the beating heart of that. Or for instance, like when Chris Cornell left Soundgarden, it just wasn't Soundgarden anymore. Right. So I feel like for me, one of the things I've tried to um, sort of talk about when I do these bartender trainings is bartending is a team sport. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're, are times where, as a creative, I feel like what's going on in the industry or what's going on in bars, it, it's, the pendulum is not swung towards my strengths. It's not swung towards my preferences. Sometimes it even hasn't swung towards my values. And yeah. then very much right now, as bars get more casual, as, as service and hospitality kind of seem to become maybe less important as creature features and comfort um, are sort of you know, slid away for bars to begin to resemble the bars I started working in in the 90s. I mean, I certainly have a lot of concerns with where our industry is headed, but I feel like for me, as a, my success is inextricably linked with that industry that I came out of, yeah. which I am now... Uh, forever a part of and I think that my success and my future uh, will all sort of work out or not work out based on my ability to remain relevant and speak to the needs mainly of young people uh, in our industry and I think that um, for me building the last the thing I ended with in our in my presentation that we could end with or 
or that I could end my answer to this question with is just um, my success and my future is predicated on my ability to build and nurture strong relationships right. with other members of the industry. And I feel like my success will be predicated uh, based on those networks and, and those relationships. Absolutely. I do have two questions left because I know you, yeah. you're often, you're a man about town, well-respected. I will be tonight. Uh, very good, very good. So we talked about music a bit, and this is a question I ask everybody, and I'm really curious how you would answer this. But let's say you're, I love the Banks, man. Stilo is a brilliant guy. Thank you. It, it's just it, something about it. It feels good. You know, rum it tastes does, good. It, it tastes delicious. So let's say you're sipping the, the, the older one. The second scale. Banks five and seven. Thank so you. yeah, seven. Yeah, so anywhere in the world, and you could have a dram with anybody living or deceased. Who might you like to just sit and wax poetic with? So I answered this. I mentioned this to the the group earlier, and what I I've been posed this question before, oh, and sure. I've obviously thought about the the actual answer to that question. And the thing that I I always come back to is. We've all, at a certain point, like been with that person who says that they, you know, that maybe they say they they wish they could have drank with Hemingway, right. or maybe they said that they wish they could have drank at La Florida. And I find that that answer, while maybe telling you a little bit about the person or the person's interests, to me, it's it leaves me feeling sort of like empty or wanting. And I think the reason why is I feel like it's so important to be present and to be present at all times yeah. in your life. And for that reason, I always say, and it sounds maybe cliched, is that my favorite drink is the one I'm having now and the favorite person that I'm drinking with is the person that I'm with now. Yeah. I think that if you, while we all motivate ourselves through aspirational people and experiences and dream to go places and do things, I feel like when we forget to live in the present and be with the people that we're with, uh, we rob them uh, and ourselves of the opportunity for those moments to resonate both in the present and future. I mean, it's lovely sentiment. And that's exactly right. And there's no greater moment than the one we're crafting right now. Yeah. You know? and, and that's the thing. Is So I feel like instead of wishing I was drinking something that I'm usually not or with I, with I wish I was around someone who probably wouldn't be interested in me as I was as interested <laughs> in them. Uh, like, who's to say Hemingway would even want to talk to me? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just, like, just be present. So yeah. I try to be present. That's incredible. Last piece. This was a wonderfully executed event, Paul, here in Austin, Diageo Reserve. They got everything right, scheduling-wise. Your presentation, wonderful thing, and a value back to industry so what's what's next are you delivering this presentation in another city i have one or? more city left we have san francisco and um i mean to be honest and going back to that idea of like the fashion and the pendulum of our industry i mean this book the my latest book came out in october mm. um and sadly it's funny i've had a lot of bar i've had a lot of bartenders thankfully come up to me at recently just most recently this past weekend at feast portland and this bartender came up to me and he was like you know what thank you so much for writing this book He's like, this is the best book, and I'm ready to, for him to say, like, it's one of the best books of all time. He's like, this is the best book that's come out this year. And I was just thinking <laughs> to myself, like, you know, it's one of those things, like, in your own mind and heart of hearts, this is going to be this, like, game-changing right. thing. It's going to, like, stand the test of time. But in reality, like, this is, 
one of the best books that came out this year. And like, I'm looking at this, you know, upcoming season. Yeah. The new Dead Rabbit book is amazing. I have uh, Jillian shared a copy with me. Uh, Alex Day and Nick Foshold and uh, Dave Kaplan have a, a Death & Co. follow-up called The Cocktail Codex. Aviary's been working yeah. on a book that I've been following very closely on uh, Kickstarter that's coming out. So just in those three books alone, and there's more, yeah. there are some really game-changing new cocktail books coming out. So I think that the, the sad reality <laughs> is that my baby is turning one in a month, and there are some newborns that are coming out, right. and they're going to steal the show. And so it's sort of, it's one of those things that thankfully this is my second time. I'm not going to be heartbroken right. or bitter or jealous. It's just the way this business works. Mm-hmm. This is a, we live in a, especially in the media, in a what's new, what's hot business. And I think as a creative instead of wasting your energy feeling jealous or frustrated that your baby is no longer the apple of the its intended audience's eyes, it's a, it's a kick in the pants to sort of continue to reinvent yourself and continue to work on new things. Right. So I have new projects that hopefully will bear fruit soon and come out, and I'll have something else that's hopefully shiny and interesting enough for someone to want to take it on the road so there's no shortage of ideas i can see it i can taste it no i feel like that's the i mean i think creative people are never short of content and and going back to what i was saying earlier about success so much of being successful in any industry is you know some the equation is basically having the know-how and the desire and then having a sense of timing and bringing that know-how and desire to the right time and place. Mm. And then the third part of it is really luck. And, it, and that luck part of the equation is not something you can train for or something you can read about or, or you can go to school for. And to me, that has a lot to do with just karma and trying to do the right thing. And I feel like if, you, you know, if your intentions are, are, are pure and if you're willing to put in the time and energy and if you're nice to people they'll be receptive to what you have to show for next and, yeah. and that timing element is crucial you know you can do the right thing but present it at the wrong time either too early or too late or in a package that is not exactly what's right for the time and and you can miss the mark so i think it's important to continue to put irons in the fire and hopefully if you're lucky and you uh you pay your debts to society, you'll get lucky and one of those irons will strike it hot and you won't have to do it anymore because you have to do it, but you can do it because you want to do it. You're an artist, man. You really are. I am a crafts person. A crafts person. Well, I am potato, crafty. potato. I yes. am crafty. Shrewdly crafty. Yeah. You've made this work for over 20 years, Jim. I mean, people look up to you. You're a fine mentor. I can't wait to see what you create next. And, you know, if people want to know, you, you, there's a laundry list of stuff you're working on. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm glad you're in Austin. I'm glad that Diageo and Paul helped coordinate this, man. I would love to chat with you more, and I hope that this is just one of many chapters in which yeah, we we'll talk about Please stay in touch. Thanks so much. Cheers. Well, there we have it, Mr. Jim Meehand, living legend. You know, I don't want to use hyperbole. I know he has had a massive impact, and he's been very influential on so many up-and-coming bartenders. It's great that he's chronicled some of his efforts in Jim Meehan's bartender manual. It's great to see him partnering with Diageo to get a bigger audience, bigger reach. You know, at the Eberly here in Austin, when Jim was presenting to the group, everybody was so beautifully 
engaged. They were hanging on each word like there was so much to learn and so much to imbue from this amazing experience that Jim has had. You know, PDT has a reputation all on its own, but there are so many other projects Jim's been a part of, and I hope that this conversation at least gets you interested in his career, gets you interested into some of his projects. With a life, you know, filled with so many different roles, so many different chapters, it's really hard to capture. So, of course, we're going to talk about Spike Lee and Smashing Pumpkin. Sorry, that's the only way that I really know how to do this thing. So thank you so much, Jim, for making this happen, and Paul from Diageo. I, I can't thank you enough for helping coordinate such a great conversation. So thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter how many amazing gifts you get this holiday season, I recently, just today, got an amazing gift of Halloween 3 season of The Witch soundtrack on vinyl. Or if you're thinking, man, I still don't know what to get my mom. She likes goats a lot. She's got three of them. What should I do? Please keep dancing.